God is good all the time. Welcome. Welcome to everybody joining us online. Welcome to those of you that join us throughout the week. Welcome to our CM campus. I want to give a special shout out. I just want to say thank you to Michaela, Jeff, the people who are our tech folks at the campuses, the people that make the online stuff. Tim Drury, his team, our online hosts. Thank you all so much for what you do because it makes the footprint of what we do just go exponentially larger. And I am so grateful. I mean, you look at this worship team up here and we have so much talent and we are so blessed. And so thank you guys. And not only that, when you have a cello, you get cool points. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, I see it and I think we get cool points. Somewhere between four and seven cool points are awarded every time that instrument comes out. Welcome to our verse-by-verse study through the book of Colossians. I'm going to call this series Reign of Freedom, R-E-I-G-N. For the next several weeks, we're going to explore this incredible letter, and in doing so, boldly proclaim that the only path to freedom is found in submitting to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ in our lives. That's the big idea. The only path to freedom is by submitting to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ in our lives. Colossians is all about Jesus. Jesus said in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. I want you to note, he did not say, I am a way. He did not say, I am a truth. He did not say, I am a life. And I am one of many and multiple paths to the Father. That is not what he said. Jesus is not a trail that leads to God. Jesus is the trail that leads to God. I also want to say as we embark on another journey, the honor of being your trail guide on these treks through Scripture is a privilege that I never, ever take for granted. You could attend church anywhere You could choose any Bible teacher, uh, yet you choose to attend here, and you've chosen me to lead you. And I just want you to know I'm deeply honored, and I'm truly grateful. And as always, I will do my very best to always be worthy of your confidence. So let's take a wide view and narrow in. One of the goals I have for the people of Christ Church is that we would be knowledgeable Christians, that we just be knowledgeable. Most people have no idea how the Bible fits together. They see it in pieces and parts. So I want to begin with a wide view, and then I want to zone in on Colossians. Now, if there's an over-under pool out there as to whether or not we will actually cover a single verse of Colossians tonight, not a chance. There's not one chance in the world we're going to get to a single verse of Colossians tonight. So pay off, pay up, and we'll be done with that. The Bible contains 66 books. 39 of them reside in the Old Testament, which was written over a span of at least a couple thousand years. Generally speaking, creation is the beginning of all things. Abraham, 2,000 years B.C. King David lives 1,000 years B.C., After that, the kings and prophets duke it out for another 600 years, and then the Bible goes offline for 400 years. It just goes offline. The Old Testament world, the Old Testament world sits right here. 
So it really goes from the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean down to the Red Sea. That is the world of the Old Testament. If you want to take rivers, it goes from the Tigris and the Euphrates, mainly Euphrates, up and over. You're going to catch the Jordan down and you can catch the Nile there. But it really begins in Ur, which is all the way down in that fertile crescent, and then it works all the way up and over. If Jerusalem is the center of the world, the Old Testament is eastern in its orientation. So here's Jerusalem. The Old Testament happens here, okay? Jerusalem is the westernmost outpost of the Old Testament, So keep that in mind. It spans from the Euphrates to the Jordan to the Nile. Colossians is one of 27 books that comprise the New Testament. It's the 12th in the sequence. The New Testament is written over a span of 50 years. Think about it. Old Testament, maybe a couple thousand years. New Testament, 50 years. And it is written within the confines of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire roughly surrounds the Mediterranean Sea. That is roughly the Roman Empire. Kind of got bigger and smaller from time to time, but that's really what we're dealing with. I think we could say the Old Testament world is intrinsically unstable. The New Testament world is unbelievably stable, just unbelievably stable. The Romans rule the world in the New Testament. So if Jerusalem is the center of the world... The New Testament is Western in its orientation. The New Testament moves this direction. So just sort of keep that as you try to get your head around it. New Testament, Jerusalem, to Ephesus, to Rome. That gives you a pretty good feel for how the New Testament rolls. There's two ways to guide someone on a trail. You can sit them down at the first, and give them all the information before the trek begins. This takes advantage of eager anticipation. It lowers anxiety. For example, you can tell people there will be cliffs ahead, and you can explain how to traverse them and talk about that it's safe and you've never lost anyone and all those kind of things, and that way when they see the cliffs for the first time, they won't freak out. But the other option is kind of to start walking down the trail and offer information on an as-needed basis. This maximizes a sense of relevance. For example, you wait until they arrive at the cliff, you offer instruction knowing you've got the full attention of everyone. How many of you would rather have information beforehand? Raise your hand. You would rather have all the information early. How many of you would prefer to get information as you went? I'm kind of an as-you-go guy, but what I really want to do here is do a little bit of both, okay? I want to do a little bit of both. So that being said, let's begin with some trail orientation. Let's get our geographical bearings because it's very important to me that you understand the scriptures were not written once upon a time in a land far away. They were written in real time and in places we can still visit today. How many of you have been on a pilgrimage with me? We are visiting the land of the Bible. How many of you are either signed up or seriously contemplating the Turkey-Greece pilgrimage? All right. That, again, these are places we can go. These are places we can stand. Uh, We're going to visit all of the places we are talking about here 
on our pilgrimage next September. So let's get an idea of where we are. All right, here we are at Fairview Heights, and we're going to go to St. Louis because you got to catch an airplane. So we are going to go. St. Louis now has a nonstop flight to Frankfurt. Yes, we're going to go land in Frankfurt, which is great. You can get a Wiener Schnitzel or something of that fashion in the airport or a Big Mac. Then from Frankfurt, we're going to go to Istanbul, which we'll be flying into next September. And just to give you some orientation, from Istanbul, here is where the book of Colossians is centered. This is the city of Colossians. Colossians, probably written or dictated by Paul from a Roman prison cell sometime in the very early 60s AD. To help you with the orientation, Jerusalem falls in 70 AD to the Romans. So that kind of gives you a pretty good idea. 60 AD, 10 years before the fall of Jerusalem. It is about the same time that Philippians was written. Both letters were delivered by Tychicus and Colasse was located 100 miles east of Ephesus in a province called Phrygia. It's, by the time of this writing, it's a minor stop on an ancient highway that ran through what is now Turkey. There was a significant minority population of Jews. We know that about 200 years before Christ, they actually took about 2,000 Jews and deposited them in this valley. So it was a part of a colonialization effort. So this is a disproportionately Jewish area. They are significant minority population. Colasse was located in the Lycus River Valley. At one time, it had been a really important trade city because of its location on the river. Think about America. The first great cities in America are on the coast, right? Then the river cities, then the railroad cities, then the interstate. So if you think about it, Colasse was a river city. And it kind of loses prominence once the Romans started building interstates. Those great Roman roads kind of changed the way that people traveled. And frankly, it's just easier to walk or take an animal along a Roman road than it is to navigate a major river. I mean, think about it. So it changed things. So Colossae was once a big, thriving city, and now it was much less than that. Are you guys aware at one time St. Louis was one of the largest cities in the country? It was one of the largest cities in the country. And so this is that kind of dynamic. It's a move away from the huge river cities. The primary economic driver is a red woolen garment. It's a garment place. When Melissa and I lived in Georgia, we lived in what was called a mill village for the old Callaway Company. The Callaway Company made textiles. And this was a kind of a mill village place, but what they produced was a very, very famous dark red woolen cloth called a cinium. There's excellent pasture there for sheep. There's local minerals that offer this deep, rich red color. And of all the crazy things, the Lycus River has huge chalk deposits. 
And as it turns out, it's sort of the perfect combination to make really good dye on really good woolen goods. So those rivers and those deposits and those minerals made Colasse a perfect location for this industry. And it's what drove the city. By the time of the writing, Colasse was in decline and it was becoming increasingly isolated. It's, people just didn't go through there anymore. This was interesting because it's probably the least important place that Paul ever wrote a letter to. It, it really is. And, and the fact that Colossae at the time is significant enough to get a letter is, is equally surprising. We know that Paul did not plant this church. There's no direct evidence Paul personally ever visited this congregation. If he did stop through on a second missionary journey, he was just passing through. The church was planted by one of Paul's disciples named Epaphras, who also had planted churches in nearby Laodicea and Hyopolis. And he had first encountered Paul in Ephesus. It's from him, no doubt, that Paul learned about the dynamics of this five-year-old church, give or take, and its unique challenges. So this is kind of getting us geared in for what we're doing. Now, let's talk about the theological stuff, all right? Colossae is a declining city. The Christian movement is spreading like wildfire across the Roman Empire in 60 AD. But since there is no official orthodoxy or correct teaching, if you will, Christian teachings about Jesus are all over the place. They're just all over the place. I, I've met a few guys uh, that meet this description. But if you, wanna, if you want somebody to really come up with some weird theology, put them in prison for about 20 years and just give them a Bible and don't let them talk to anybody. I've met a few of these guys. They come up with some wild stuff. I mean, some wild stuff. Well, Colossae is sort of coming up with some wild stuff here. They are increasingly isolated, and they have this unique confluence of things going on inside the city. Despite a significant Jewish presence in the city, the church seems to have been primarily Gentile, and the version of Christianity that had developed there is a bit of a fusion. And it's kind of where we get confusion. There's elements of a lot of different things. So there's elements of Judaism, for sure, because there was a strong Jewish community. There's elements of the early Christian teaching that's flying around everywhere, including Paul's teaching. There's elements of popular philosophy, like Stoicism and Epicureanism and those Roman philosophies. And there's this sort of elitist spiritualism. So I want you to kind of think of all these as vegetables you put in a stew. And they threw it all in, and by the time you season it in Colossian style, it tastes weird. That's kind of what you got. It was just a weird combination of things and a bit of a unique combination of things. Paul was convinced by Epaphras, who planted the church, that this unique confluence of religious thought contained a theological virus that would prove fatal if it went unchecked. That's why Paul wrote the letter. We've labeled this particular virus syncretism or the Colossians heresy. Heresy just means teaching about Christ that is not 
unorthodox, all right? Just non-orthodox teaching. So for example, if someone today would be teaching in a church that Jesus didn't raise from the dead, that would be heresy. It is not in the mainstream of Christian thought. It's something other. Well, this particular syncretism is kind of this fusing and blending of religions. And of particular concern was an angel cult, this mysticism in the city that venerated, of all things, the archangel Michael. So I would probably argue that the only culture that can really relate to this crazy blend of religions since Colossians was written is the one we're in right now. It's the one we're in right now. Because of the lack of clearly defined parameters as to what constituted Christian belief, the Colossians practiced a a fused or or a mashed-up Christianity. If you toss all this in a blender and add ice, I would call it a tainted Christian frappe. And as best I can tell, there are several aspects to what we call the Colossians heresy. The problem is they didn't really ever form a a theological construct in Colossae. And so what we have to do is sort of pick apart Colossians to see what the nature of this heresy was. But here here were the big points of the Colossians heresy. Number one, they believe God was distant. It's a faraway God, a watchmaker God, right? God is a watchmaker. He makes the watch and then God's out doing something else. Number two, low to no Christology. There is a de-emphasis that Jesus was the son of God, a de-emphasis on the resurrection. We see that very much today. Number two, a lot of Jewish legalism, and it's really kind of weird, but a lot of people are out there saying you need to eat kosher and you need to follow the Jewish rules and regulations. That's in this. Number four, a belief in a special knowledge, that we are enlightened that we in Colossae are probably the best Christians ever because we have received special enlightenment. Number five, they were spiritualists. They were spiritualists, not Christians. Have you ever known anybody that's very spiritual but not Christian? They, They were those people. Number six, angel worship. We're not real big on that, are we? But there were angel worshipers. But I will tell you one thing that's happening now. Type angel into a Google search and hit images. Boy, there's scary stuff pops up. I was kind of looking for one that looked like Roman Downey Jr. And, and, and uh, it didn't really happen. Uh, I kind of looked, you know, kind of Michael Landon kind of angel kind of thing. They weren't there, man. They were these spooky graphic angels. So there's some of this stuff going on. So those were the kind of the big ideas. We'll hit more of them later. Paul wrote to encourage the things that the Colossians had right, but the reality is if they didn't have so much wrong, he wouldn't have written them. Have you ever had a talk with somebody and you start off by telling them how nice they are, but if they were just nice, you would have never talked to them? You don't. There was a need for orthodoxy in Colossae. There was a need for standard belief about Christ, and really, Colossians is exactly what Paul's offering. So living in a world today where we have blended and fusion of religions, where a lot of people today 
would say, you know, all religions basically teach the same thing, and you can kick a field goal in a baseball game if you want. As In this kind of day, Colossians is really, really important to ground us. So I think it's huge what you're going to learn here, and you're going to learn how to better converse with people who have fallen into these kind of thinking patterns. Parts of the Colossian heresy may have been early strands of a Christian heretic movement called Gnostics with a G. The big idea driving Gnosticism was that God is known by intellectual or cognitive knowledge. And and I hate to say it, but in some ways, they kind of had an evangelistic impulse. I see this in a lot of Christians today. They have this idea that if they can explain Christianity rationally, If we can just take faith away and try to prove things, if we can just use the rules of logical thought and thinking, then people might be more receptive to receive it. What they're trying to do is take faith out of the equation. And it's crazy because the Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. And a lot of people today are trying to make Christianity more palatable to non-Christians, and what they're ending up doing is watering it down. There are those who think if we just ignore this biblical ethical teaching or soften or reinterpret that unpopular moral teaching today, that the gospel will get a better hearing. I think the intention of some of these folks is probably not bad, but the effects over the past 50 years in the American church have been utterly catastrophic. The end result of this play has been what we would call a diluted or a watered-down gospel. Why do you dilute something? You dilute something that you perceive to be too strong or tastes too bad or cannot be absorbed at full strength. The irony is that churches and faith traditions today who have watered down and diluted the gospel of Jesus Christ in an ill-fated attempt to live have actually accelerated their death. The collapse of the American mainline would be a case in point all day long. So here's what I need you to hear. The gospel of Jesus Christ must be served at full strength. The gospel of Jesus Christ must be served at full strength. In this book, Paul proclaims that we are made right with God by the death, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. By the work of Christ, our sins have been forgiven. We have been saved from eternity apart from God. And our earthly lives will be filled with power and purpose and peace and passion. So here's the big idea. The Colossians, heresy, said you're saved by what you know. Paul's saying you're saved by who you know, and the who is Jesus. In this book, Paul proclaims that we are made right with God through Christ and Christ alone. Paul knew that he did not carry the kind of spiritual weight with this church that he did with the Philippians. He didn't start the church. Nobody knew him. He didn't carry that kind of spiritual weight. He is not in a position to just tie into him. He's just not. I was was in the sanctuary a few years back, and uh, church was over. And this guy I'd never seen before in my life kind of approached me. It's back before we had security. I guess now if he would have done this, somebody would have stuck like a thumb in his eye socket, driven him to the ground or something. But... uh, this guy kind of comes up to me really, really hot and kind of aggressive. And, and uh, 
he starts telling me everything we're doing wrong. And I mean, he's really kind of radiating at high frequency. And I looked at him and I said, who are you? <laughs> and, and, and he kept going. He told me who he was. And I said, why? Why would I possibly care what you think? And I just left. I mean, why would I possibly care? Well, that's part of the problem Paul's facing here. Why would the Colossians possibly care what Paul thinks? Have you ever had somebody you didn't know very well and you didn't have a relationship come in all authoritative and kind of tell you what you should do? That's not going to go over well. It's not going to go over well. And so Paul kind of understands that. So what Paul's really going to do here, he's going to realize that if you're going to offer correction to a church you don't really know, you better butter them up early. You just better butter them up early. And that's exactly what is going to happen here. So there's a lot of complimentary statements early. But always keep in mind, this letter does not get written without Epaphras expressing his concerns to Paul. And no matter how much flattery there is in this, Paul is addressing a problem. But it's not just a Colossian problem. It's not just a Colossian problem in 61 AD. It's an American problem in 2023. In an era where many people today believe that all religions are about the same. Have you heard that over and over? All religions believe about the same. Colossians is a powerful reminder that apart from Jesus, Christianity isn't Christian at all. It's just apart from Jesus. You take Jesus out of Christianity, it's no longer Christian. A few days back, I posted some thoughts on social media concerning four current theological viruses that I see. And this is exactly what Paul is doing in Colossae. So I, I posted my thoughts on four viruses. I, I was shocked that this thing just took off. It just took off. And we're talking about a Facebook post. And I looked this afternoon, 162,453 people have read this, all right? So just insane. So what, what happens when something like that occurs is you've hit on something. You know what I'm talking about? You've hit on something. And so I thought, okay, people are, are resonating with these four viruses. And, and some of them are, are critiquing me. Of course, you put yourself out there, you're going to get that. But uh, not many, <laughs> really. Not many. I was really surprised by the lack of hate mail that I got because I've gotten so much over the past few years. I was really surprised. But a lot of people were really resonating with this. So I want to close this down tonight by really outlining the four theological viruses that I see in America. Then as we go through the book, we're going to juxtapose the viruses in the church at Colossae with the viruses that we see in America, and we're going to apply the same cure. That is what we're going to do as we move forward. Again, we're working to deal with this not in pieces and parts, but to deal with it as a whole and also to apply it directly to our lives today. Four theological viruses. The big concern I have about these viruses are threefold. Number one, I can see the appeal in every single virus. I can see the appeal. Uh, number two, uh, I can understand why people lean into them. So they have wide appeal, 
and I can understand why they have wide appeal. And number three, uh, they're going to really serve people poorly in the long run. And that's the deal. They're going to really serve people in the long run. I was raised in a period of time. I wasn't raised in this, but there was a period of time we were kind of in a theological tradition that taken to an extreme, people sort of believed that if you truly loved God, you're going to be healthy and wealthy and everything's going to go your way. Now, not everybody believed that, and that wasn't the core of the theology, but there were people there. Well, you know the problem with that? It just doesn't hold up to real life. It just doesn't. No matter how much you love the Lord, you're going to die of something, and I'm sorry if you heard it here first. You're going to die of something. People that love the Lord are going to get sick. People who love the Lord may have financial setbacks. These people who love the Lord may have prodigal sons and prodigal daughters. So guys, just because we have a relationship with Christ doesn't mean everything's going to go our way. And, and that's the problem with bad theology. It collapses right about the time you need it. When you don't need bad theology, it seems really good. The second you need it, it collapses on itself because it, it's false. So first virus that I see in our culture today is that God exists for us. God's function is to make us happy. God's function is to give us what we want and make our dreams come true. Mainly worldly, material dreams. I get the appeal. I get the appeal of making God a means to worldly prosperity. The problem is the gospel of Christ stands antithetical to this notion. Jesus taught that true happiness is found in submitting our dreams for ourselves to the dream of God for our lives. Jesus taught that we truly live by dying to self. We become great by serving, and our lives are defined by what we give away, not by what we have. In fact, Jesus said until the grip of material things is broken in our lives, we invite an existence of anxiety and worry, the diametrical opposite of happiness. So here's the deal. God does not exist for us. We exist for God. God does not exist for your pleasure. We exist for God's pleasure. God is not a means to your ends. God is a means and ends to himself. The reward of God is not that he's going to make you healthy, wealthy, and everything's going to go your way. The reward of God is God himself. Second virus is this notion that Christian people should spend their lives waiting for some great thing God may ask of them. So they spend their entire lives waiting for this great thing that God may ask of them. The idea is to say no to the good in hopes of the very best. I really get the appeal because the people I see buying into this are people who are really worn out from Christian service and are really discouraged. And they've kind of used this to kind of check out for a while. But I'm, I'm just going to say the Bible does not support this way of thinking. The Bible doesn't say sit around and sequester yourself until God gives you something really great to do. Waiting for a burning bush call is problematic. And I'm just going to tell you the problem. It's only happened once in the history of the world. Once. And so if you're sitting around waiting for that to happen to you, I don't like your odds. It's only happened once. I think it's a bad use of the limited years that we have on earth. In sharp contrast, the Bible teaches 
that being faithful in small things is actually what prepares and qualifies us for greater things. I'm asked all the time, what's the best way to become a staff member at Christ Church? I'll tell people, start as a volunteer and make yourself indispensable. Let us see. We can't live without you. We need more of your time than you're able to give. That's a great way to do it. See, I'm convinced that the true greatness of a person is not defined in a single heroic act, but in the grind of daily faithfulness and obedience to God. Those of you that are good parents, there's, there's not a moment at which you've achieved that. It's being faithful in the grind of it. I don't think burning bushes or for such a time as this moment are the inheritance of those sequestered in wait. I just don't. So here's the deal. If you hope God will use you to do one big thing, I would suggest you start being faithful in small things. In small things. There's a lot right and not a thing wrong with living a simple life of love and faithfulness and obedience. Not a thing wrong with it. Third virus. That we are suddenly smarter than everyone else who has ever read the Bible. Such enlightenment is historically short-lived, never serves the Christian faith well. What we're having now is a shift from what I'm going to call classical liberalism, where the idea was the Bible was wrong. That was classic liberalism. The shift now is not the Bible is wrong. That didn't work. The focus is that we've been reading the Bible wrong. Everyone else who's not us has been reading the Bible wrong. Everybody. These pseudo-theologians begin with culturally popular outcomes and then steer the Bible in their direction in a game of eisegetical gymnastics. And to be honest, it would be comical if so many people weren't taking it seriously. The harm in this will not be to the Bible. It'll be to our culture which will lose the Bible's power, witness, and critique. Surely, creating God in our own image will not stand because it never has. And we will be worse for it. My default is that if the clear and consistent teachings of the Bible conflict with my way of thinking, it is me who stands in error. I can't begin with what I want the outcome to be and then shift and massage the data to get me there. That would be a horrible scientist. And it's a horrible theologian. As theologians, we gotta go where the Bible takes us. We can't start with this agenda and then try to shove the Bible into proving our point. Now, people do it all the time, but they do it Kind of like McDonald's used to make chicken nuggets. I remember when I was a kid and they first came out with chicken nuggets and you bit into one and you looked at it. I think I'd never seen a chicken. And what they basically did, from what I understand, is they kind of took all the parts of a chicken that you couldn't really sell, like beaks and stuff. And then they kind of pureed them. And then they added some flavoring and gelatin and dye. And then they sort of deep fried them. And then they served them. They weren't chicken breasts. They, they weren't chicken anything. They were 
pieces and parts of chicken. It's all kind of compressed into something semi-edible. If you had enough ketchup. Uh, a lot of people do theology like that. They take pieces and parts. They take verses out of context. They take something here, take something here, and take something here. They throw it all together. They deep fry it, and they serve it with a lot of ketchup. Why? Because it supports what they were already thinking. You can't read the Bible and begin with what you're already thinking. You have to open yourself to the Holy Spirit and say, God, speak to me through this. And if you reveal something that is not in alignment with how I think, I capitulate to your wisdom. This gets back to true freedom is only found from through submission to Christ. Fourth virus. You say, boy, you're kind of stepping on some toes here. That's why nobody does this. It is. It's why nobody does it. I'm just too old to care. The fourth virus is that God is somehow aligned with your political party. <laughs> Viewing theology through a political lens is dangerous. Viewing theology, viewing the Bible through a political lens is dangerous. God isn't a Democrat, and God isn't a Republican, and God isn't an American. God is way bigger than all that. Shrinking God down to the size of a voting booth is idolatry. I am all for you being active, however God leads you. I'm for you voting your conscience and all of that, but do not shrink God down into your political platform. He's not going to fit. He's not going to fit. We have to stop viewing theology through a political lens, and we need to start viewing politics through a theological lens. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. So let me land the plane. If you see God simply as a means to your ends of your bank account moving up and to the right, you're missing the point. If you are sitting around doing nothing in the midst of infinite opportunities to serve Jesus, you are missing the point. If you think the Bible is something to twist and shape to your own way of thinking, you are missing the point. And if you think the kingdom of God will be ushered in by the next election, you are missing the point. Contentment is found in sacrifice. Calling is found in obedience. Truth is found in God's word. And the kingdom will come through obedience to Christ, period. <laughs> <laughs>